You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the Darshan Talks Podcast, regulatory guy, irregular podcast with host Darshan Kulkarni. You can find the show on Twitter at Darshan Talks or the show's website at darshantalks.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Darshan Talks. I'm your host, Darshan Kulkarni. Uh, I'm an attorney. I'm a pharmacist. I advise patients, uh, well, I advise companies with FDA-regulated products. So if you work with or have an interest in a company uh, that or products that are FDA-regulated, this is the podcast for you. Um, today's podcast is about a term that has been thrown around in the last two to three years a lot, which is patient interest and patient advocacy. The, the truth is that the term's been around for over 25 years. We're just seeing a lot of buzzwords around it right now. So if you are in medical affairs, if you are in uh, sales, if you're in marketing, if you're in clinical research, hell, if you're actually um, guiding a company and you are in the C-suite, you need to be talking and having these conversations. You need to be listening in. So uh, today's podcast is about exactly that topic. Our guest today is uh, the head of patient engagement partnerships at NextGen. And um, she is the person, I had a quick brief conversation with her about some of the things she's working on. And I really don't think we can fit it, it, fit it into 20 minutes. So <laughs> I'm a little concerned. Um, but let's start, start now. Um, ladies and gentlemen, our guest for today, Emma Sutcliffe. And Emma, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Was that a very polite way of saying I talk too much? I'm a bit garrulous. <laughs> no, it's it's a polite way of saying I don't know if I can keep up with her. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but Emma, this is this is such a burgeoning area, of, and I'm going to pretend like it's it's newly discovered and no one's thought of concentricity before because it never existed before two or three years ago. Right. And, and no one had thought of it, but a pharma companies have finally discovered that patients are what, are what matter. So, so what is your take on that initial jump off point of um, patient centricity didn't exist to before two to three years ago? I would say that's absolute nonsense. And I'm sure that you won't mind me correcting you on that. No, we saw, we saw the, um, the, the focus on patient engagement and patient centricity really with uh, the end of the 80s and the early 90s uh, through 1995 with um, the way that pharma companies started to interact with uh, people living with HIV. So at that time... Um, it was a hugely collaborative effort and um, uh, it really changed uh, the involvement of the patient in medicine. So what my, the very first project I worked on as a medical writer in, in 1996 was to uh, work with a patient advocacy group um, to explain to them how these new drugs, um, uh, uh, protease inhibitors for HIV, were going to make a difference to literally to, to saving their lives. And what we saw from that, that kind of mid-90s period was this... Um, that healthcare started to become more egalitarian. So we started through necessity to hear and listen to that patient voice and to start to think about how pharma provision of medicine. So fast forward to you know, just this very last week, and I've been um, researching um, 
across oncology and cancer conditions, what different 10 different pharma companies are doing in terms of patient support programs in cancer. And it's overwhelmingly good. Um, it's, it's always hugely inspirational and hugely reassuring that the pharma companies that I work with, they have absolutely exquisite patient support programs. And again, there's a correction that needs to be made here because it's not just about basic patient engagement on a World Asthma Day or, you know, World Cancer Day, which was, I think, February the 4th. We've just, we've just passed that one. What, what pharma companies do is they provide extreme extremely good programs right from that that early screening and diagnosis piece and helping patient advisory groups to inform their members right through to patients being involved in in uh, medicine trial design through to um uh, talking with the regulators about how these these medicines impact on their lives and then right through to the real world where people might have to take medication every day and they're human and they might forget it one day. So pharma provide fantastic patient support programs. So patient engagement goes from advocacy right through to patient support. And the amount of um, effort, and I I mean resources and creative thinking and counselling and support, not just financial um, effort, but the amount of effort that all pharma companies put into patient engagement these days is phenomenal and they should be credited for um, the exquisite health education support they provide. So, um, no, it's not a new thing. <laughs> it's not been around for two or three years. We're a good 25 years into, into practice. But I think what's happening is um, pharma companies have been the pantomime villain. You know, they are the, the first um, kind of companies that people want to attack, certainly mainstream media. But what we're seeing now is in the last couple of years, pharma have started to say, well, hang on a minute. Actually, you know, we we do great stuff here. So we're, we're starting to feel as though we're hearing more about patient engagement because at last, pharma companies are starting to get the credit for the great work they do. And of course, the way that they've behaved during the pandemic, again, has been a phenomenal demonstration of what happens when pharma collaborates with scientists, with academics and with patient groups. So I think we're in an excellent place um, for patient engagement, um, but it's certainly not an overnight success. So so that really brings the question of just clarifying terms, because we we throw a lot of terms around. Yeah. patient engagement, patient centricity, we've got patient support, and we've got patient yeah. advocacy. How are they different? Um, patient, so so you, I've just described a spectrum from um, patient advocacy right through to patient support programs. So different pharma companies have different approaches uh, to where they want to sit on that spectrum. The big pharma companies will have um, strategy and uh, resource contribution for every part of the the patient spectrum. Um, So we do see a lot of terms that are being thrown around. Uh, We do, we we also struggle a little bit with um, practices and, you know, what standard practices should be and could be. So you do hear all the time, is is this patient centricity? Is this patient engagement? Is this patient voice? 
it doesn't really matter in my, you know, not <laughs> in my humble opinion, so long as patients are part of medicine development and health support, um, we will find the right terminologies. Um, but what we need to do is, is, is recognise that pharma have gone a very long way into building mechanisms in-house and having that organisational psyche so that they can actually listen to patients and work with patients. So there's been a huge amount of lobbying over the past five years or so, which is why it feels as though patient engagement is, is quite a new thing. What it is, is the industry finding out and settling down with its practices. Um, but but what is without a shadow of a doubt, and we're just starting to see academic publications on this, is if you get your patient engagement strategy right, from advocacy right through to support, then I certainly I certainly know it's been um, ratified in the oncology setting that if you get it right, it's the equivalent of getting a, a, an oncology product through the pipeline and getting it launched and approved, saving two years. Um, in that process. Now, that's an incredible amount of time saving to someone who has um, cancer. You know, so from, from an output perspective, getting a medicine to a patient who needs it sooner is only a good thing. And saving the monies that, that pharma companies can save to then put back into R&D, again, can only be a good thing. So the mutual benefits of getting patient programmes right um are, are, are right there in front of us we can't deny that that actually patient support and patient engagement is a therapy in itself you know it, it it's a ratified therapy so there, there are two questions that really jump out at me immediately when you say this the first question i'm thinking about is when you use the term ratified what exactly are do you mean ratified by whom and the second question yeah. that I really want to get into after you answer that, so you can sort of uh, dovetail into it if you want to, is um, I've, I've seen the word patient advocacy used. We, we've seen the hashtags everywhere. Uh, I've, I've seen discussions over involving patients in uh, clinical trial design. Um, and and there, there's another whole element of um, designing um, marketing programs and the like uh, to, to support patients, but, but no one's actually talked about post-approval support. And that's a conversation you hinted at a little bit earlier. So yeah. once you explain the ratification, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what that, um, that, that post-approval support process looks like and what have companies done that, that helps these patients. Okay, so the the answer on ratification, the the response on ratification comes because what we have to bear in mind is the pharmaceutical industry is one of the most, if not the most, heavily regulated industries, um, and for so many years until we started to have change um, in the system, as I described earlier with the HIV patient, changing what it means to be a patient, um, we it, it was a real. It, it is a real, it's, it still is a real struggle for your average person, farmer exec working inside a pharma company, because they are told not to communicate with patients, not to um, you know, have any interaction with patients, not to 
bring bias into conversations, which if you think about it, is ridiculous because um, how can pharma design products and medicines for patients if they're not allowed to talk to patients? So for a long time, we had this paralysis, this kind of, um, you know, uh, a, a bit of a no man's land where patients were saying, hey, we want to talk to you. But pharma were saying, I don't think we're allowed to. So we had a lot of problems in terms of justifying and ratifying and setting good transparent processes in place that's what's been a lot of the focus of the last last three three or five three to five years what we've now got are pharma companies being bold and sharing their case studies and sharing the impact of good patient engagement programs and when you see the big companies um, being prepared to say Yes, we have a commitment to patient engagement and we we info, we kind of embed that into all of our processes in-house. And then we will publicly declare how important it is to have a patient commitment. And Novartis have led the way in doing that. So what we're seeing is confidence within pharma companies that we've found a way to um, put this into good practice. We found a way to be transparent and we found the right mechanics of conversation where a patient, um, you know, isn't being um, sold to and a pharma company is properly listening to a patient and their needs. And the role of the patient advocacy groups in brokering that, that transparent relationship is fundamental. It's a really important piece. So when I talk about ratification, I suppose what I'm actually saying is patient advisory groups and patient opinion leaders have given the green light to pharma companies and accordingly pharma companies have sorted out their processes and they've sorted out how to make this work. So what we're now seeing is confidence that these engagements can happen, they are mutually beneficial, and um, the outcomes are better medicines to patients more quickly and surrounding support. So we've been tying ourselves in knots around how to do it, but we know now how to do it. And we've got big pharma companies um, and the, the leaders in it are really Novartis, AstraZeneca, um, GSK, who have said, we need to engage with patients and this is how we're going to do it. So we're at that point now where the less confident companies are able to take examples from their peers and get on with it. Does so, that make sense? And, and let, that, make sense? that does make sense, actually, and that's really, really interesting. Um, I, I know you haven't yet answered the question on what support looks like because that's a whole other beast. But we'll jump into that question. Um, you read... So I, I, I'm an attorney. I'm a compliance officer. Um, yeah. And I can definitely feel the change in tone. Uh, pharma companies being less eager to get into pharma companies saying, not can we do it, but how do we do it? And that, that question of how do we do it changes you from going, no, there's a lot of reasons you can't do this, to, okay, there is a way to do this. We just need to really keep threading the needle. Um, yeah. But in your opinion, um, how do you and, and again, you have to ex accept a certain amount of risk that goes along with it, because there are yeah. just like there are companies that are doing good jobs with engaging appro appropriately with patients. There are companies doing terrible jobs and actually influencing patients. 
And there are situations where that happens. And obviously we have to be careful of that. Um, so, but the key piece I was sort of get to was what is the right department to engage with pharma companies? Cause you talk about patients saying, we want to talk to you. And that's always been um, with, with in the U S there is direct to consumer advertising. So, so marketing was the stakeholder of engaging with patients. Then there was medical affairs that said, no, 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 we don't want you discussing something that you don't fully understand. So we want to be the holder of scientific information. Then you had someone going, well, neither of you should be doing this. It should be a patient advocacy group, which really then meant creating a patient advocacy group, which didn't exist, and then re-threading the needle to understand who they'll engage yeah. with and how. So, yeah. uh, or, and then there was obviously medical writers who had their opinions. There were transparency people who had their opinions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in your experience, in, in obviously different companies do differently, but what are some tips and tricks uh, and who should be the holder of this information as you see it? Absolutely. It's a great question. And, and a lot of the work that we do with our clients is to help them to create what you're describing there is the infrastructure within a pharma company of, of who should be doing what, where and when and how. So uh, what you typically have uh, within, a, within a pharma company will be an organisation whereby the patient advocacy piece sits within government affairs and advocacy. The uh, clinical trial design conversations and patient voice and clinical trial design sits within R&D and there will be specialist patient um, uh, um, uh, uh, internal people from pharma in the R&D piece. And then you'll move through to medical affairs. So medical affairs will then have uh, an impact on um, how these medicines are going to be used and providing support beyond um, regulatory approval. And yes, traditionally, um, it might have been thought that um, patient advocacy and patient engagement sits within commercial, but I'm not. I'm. I've not really seen that for several years. Um, what tends to happen is there's a specialist patient support group who follow on with patients for long-term compliance and adherence. So you do still have. Um, you know, a bit of a silo going on, but we've got to be realistic. Some of these companies have, I think Roche has something like 75,000 employees. So um, it's it would be pretty Herculean a task to have, you know, one group or one set of people who are overseeing patient engagement practices and thinking across, you know, such a vast organisation. So what then happens is you tend to have uh, an internal task force uh, or a leadership team, and they usually are given the title of patient insights director. Um, very few companies actually have a, a chief patient officer. I think there's a handful. Ferring has a CPO. Uh, Pfizer has a CPO. Um, I think some of the Nordic companies have CPOs too. So I think Novo Nordisk has, has a CPO. And their role, the CPO's role, is to be overseeing how patient engagement happens and is transacted across all of the departments. But as I said, there's only a handful of them. So what you have to do is create a task force and a leadership task force. And it seems to settle with the people who are responsible for patient insights. So it's almost as though the patient insights leads are the people who 
take that information literally from, you know, the earliest part of a patient journey right through to, you know, patient receiving support for long-term treatments. Now, that is quite challenging because every different department has a different need from their engagement with, with a patient group or with a patient. But what we know from patient groups and from patient opinion leaders is they say, You've got your different departments, but they overwhelmingly would prefer to have one kind of contact with an industry that helps them to navigate around. So the companies who are getting it really spot on, um, I'm going to give mention to companies like Merck, who have a very strong patient insights team. Uh, this is uh, 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 the Merck company, not Merck, Merck Sharp and Doan. What they do is they have a global task force who take responsibility for the insights that parts of their business need, but also the enduring relationships with that patient leader and with that patient group. And there are a lot of companies that replicate that task force insights protector kind of behavior. And you know, every company will have to find its a slight different variation on that infrastructure and organization. Um, but the willingness and the attitude and that organizational psyche is the key thing. If you've got the psyche that we need to be patient centric, we need to engage with patients as as soon and as often as we can, then the infrastructure will find its its rightful place. So it's it's funny you're saying this because I'm getting a ton of comments going through. I don't know if you can see them on your side. I, I can't we've see got them. <laughs> okay. We've had Anjali and Neha both say that they're loving these conversations. That it's, oh, there's a lot of good information being shared. Um, Neha had pointed out that Par Excel apparently is a CPO as well. And um, Richard Excel, Theron. Par Excel is a, an agency, isn't it? And a clinical trials group. It's a CRO. I, 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 th- I CRO. I think it's a really good point, actually, because what you do see is the research agencies and the clinical trials agencies, they do have a CPO. And I'm starting to see assignment of CPOs in medcoms agencies and health agencies. Um, often when you find, I, I, you know, I'm biased here, you know, I'm head of a, a patient engagement at an agency. So, of course, I'm going to blow the agency's trumpet. However, it is true, and I, I'm, I'm sure fellow um, I'm sure fellow agency people will speak up here, is that often you find that the medical communications agency is a little bit closer to the patient group or the patient opinion leaders than perhaps the pharmaceutical client, because we can be. Um, we, we are almost the brokers of that relationship. And, you know, what we are able to do is, is keep things transparent and balanced between both parties. So we are very, very close with patient groups. What I'm seeing is uh, within the service industry, so within the medcoms industry, we are starting to see chief patient officers within within those organizations. And I think it can only be a good thing because the more people that we have keeping trust and transparency and patient voice in the system, the better the outcomes are going to be. Um, and actually, Richard Farron agrees with you. He goes, patient engagement is critical to ensure studies are relevant, development program, programs meet patient needs. So yes. absolutely. And thank you all of you for commenting as we continue. Um, so let me let me ask you this this question because we're already past time. So I'm going to ask you one <laughs> one question about this. But um, w- when you are 
advising companies, at least when I'm talking to companies, they're always talking about the newest, latest, best thing. And you, when you start talking, you actually talked about this idea of uh, tracing the patient journey and you talked about how you're a medical writer. Um, the closest thing people are getting into are things like lay summaries. But um, have you, when you're talking about the patient journey and, and the like, have you seen technology being pulled in, whether it's blockchain, whether it's uh, VR, whether it's AR, any of those things? Or are companies shying away from the technology and still doing boots in the ground, let's talk to patients? They're not shying away from the tech. And in fact, um, again, this is, this is coming from that patient-consumer attitude. Uh, patients want tech. They want to monitor their conditions. They want to monitor how effective their, their medicines are. They want to be able to create their own data to then share that data back with pharma companies to keep finding new, new solutions. In healthcare, the digital... Um, you know, we're, we're way past digital, digital transformation. Um, and, and what we see also in pharma companies are we do have chief digital officers. Um, and when you've got a, a chief digital officer with a task force of patient engagement, it's it's an absolute killer combo. It's a fantastic combination. Um, I, I, I've yet to meet patient experts or patient opinion leaders or patient groups that aren't looking for digital technical collaborations with pharma companies. In fact, it, I, I did write an article on, a, on it um, a couple of months ago to, to, to perhaps suggest that it's almost the case that the data pipeline, um, the, the patient data pipeline is almost the most important pipeline, almost more than the molecular pipeline within, um, within pharma companies and healthcare at the moment. Um, and the, the data architect and the data analyst within, within a pharma company is the hot job. So, um, you know, there's a huge collaboration going on um, in, in between patient engagement and supporting people's everyday lives. Um, and it's actually come from, again, from the patients themselves. Patients want the kit to help them navigate through life with a chronic condition, life with a life-threatening condition when you can't get to the hospital because we're, we're dealing with a pandemic. So all of these tech, all of this tech, supportive tech and predictive tech is um, you know, phenomenal um, in, in pharma patient engagement right now. And it's just going to get stronger and stronger. Um, so I'm going to raise two points that were raised um, that I agree with you. Richard uh, wrote back in, and he pointed out that Medtronic and ResMed don't develop CPAPs without consulting patient groups like the American Sleep Apnea Society. And uh, then he makes a comment, um, which is on the screen, uh, but VOP should, uh, I'm not sure what VOP stands for, but VOP should drive new... Voice of uh, patient, I think. Oh, voice of the patient. Okay, voice of the patient should yeah. drive new product development. It's also essential for device and combo development, which I think we'd all agree with. Neha points out that transparency uh, only increases trust for sure. So she's agreeing with us as well. So we can obviously keep going. and I'd love to have you back and, and discuss <laughs> more of this. But um, what, what I'd like to do is actually uh, in, pull you into these questions that I do, which is a rapid fire round uh, okay. just for... <laughs> I feel like I'm on a quiz now. There, is there a buzzer? Can I press This a is a quiz. I'm sorry. I didn't tell you about okay. the pop quiz we have at the end, but um, <laughs> it, it should be easy, I would expect. Um, okay, so we'll ask, uh, we usually do 10. We'll only ask five because it's late at where you are uh, or later. 
where you are. Um, okay, what's an accomplishment? Yeah, for I, don't know, I don't know why I agreed to do a podcast at 6 p.m. <laughs> on a Friday evening after a very long week. I didn't really think that through, did I? <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on. No and, um, what's an accomplishment you're most proud of? Oh my gosh. I, I, I've just never, I'm, I, I still get goosebumps now. I'm never, ever going to forget the lab results coming in for um, the protease inhibitors for HIV um, virus undetectable. And, you know, being able to communicate that with patient groups, you know, that's when you realise you are literally making medical history and, you know, it was phenomenal. Something I am, I am proud of is, um, you know, being part of uh, working with Grunenthal, and I'm going to name check them because they created something called PainSolve, which is a multi-collaborative research portal. There are over 90 different kinds of pain conditions, but we don't approach it in that way. So I'm really proud that, you know, we co-created that. Um, uh, Next Gen and myself and Grunenthal to create PainSolve, which is an award-winning program. But as part of that patient engagement process, um, you know, we were in in Brussels um, at the uh, European Parliament lobbying for pain to be almost the fourth vital sign um, and for end-of-life care um, to, you know, have better pain management. So, you know, I, I'm particularly I am proud of what Grunenthal and the agency did with PainSolve and with that lobbying. Um, and, you know, we, we, we spoke with um, pa- uh, patient representatives from so many pain groups, so many rare pain groups, and we've got Rare Disease Day coming up um, in, in a couple of days too. So that was a huge, huge project. Um, and... Uh, the head of R&D at the time, uh, a gentleman called uh, Dr. Mark Field, um, he was really courageous. You know, he literally said, we need to bring POV, voice of the patient, into um, into all of our R&D. We don't know how to do it. You guys are patient experts. Come and help us to get our infrastructure sorted out. And he just had faith that we could do that for him. Um, and, you know... I, Proof of the pudding, PainSolve is a fantastic repository. Um, and, you know, we did get to, um, you know, make some changes on how pain has an impact on society. So, I mean, yeah. I've had so many projects since 1996, but those are two standouts for me. Awesome. Um, who is your hero or heroine and why? Oh, who's my hero or heroine? Uh, I think I name-checked quite a few people there. Um... Laura McEvaney, who's just left Novartis uh, after a very long and illustrious career, who totally nailed it in setting up uh, patient engagement infrastructure within Novartis. I mean, that is one incredible lady. She did a fantastic job there. Um, so from a patient engagement perspective within pharma company, I've got to, I've got to say Laura is absolutely superb. Um, I've, I've been, you know, really privileged to work with a lot of pharma companies on on product development and patient engagement. Um, and I do have to say, um, you know, I, 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 I did have a chat way back at the beginning of time with, with Tony Fauci um, about, you know, his, his work in HIV. And so I have to pinch myself because I, I just, 
it's just phenomenal when medical scientists, researchers, pharma and patient groups collaborate fantastic things happen. So I have to say, I'm hugely inspired by, you know, um, that that opinion, opinion leaders just sitting, you know, at their desk in their house, just getting stuff done. Um, from a patient perspective, I would totally name check Trishna, Trishna Bradia, who as an MS advocate is again, phenomenal. One voice making a huge difference. And someone like Lawrence uh, Willard, who has haemophilia, and he's created an entire haemophilia educational set for people with haemophilia. So, you know, you've got very big names and you've got, um, you know, very big patient advocates. The magic happens when we all collaborate for the greater good. And, you know, the heroes for me are the people who don't accept no and and keep marching forward. And the people I've just named there are from industry, our patients and our, our researchers, and they're people who've refused to accept no for an answer. They've they've you know been completely courageous in in building bridges between patients and pharma companies. Uh okay. What is the most fun you've had recently? <laughs> I mean I, how do I answer that? You know, I'm a mum and stepmum to four children under the age of 15. So, you know, I've been homeschooling as well as working. So it's not been that fun. <laughs> What's the most fun I've had recently? Do you want me to answer that from a, a professional medical working perspective? However you want to answer it. <laughs> They're all well, open questions. You know, uh, the most fun I've had recently... Um, I mean, I'm kind of geeky and sciencey, and I do think of patient engagement and medicine as my fifth child. So I'm afraid I'm quite geeky on that front. Um, I think just seeing patient summits going on, seeing pharma companies wanting to do better, um, that I'm afraid is fun to me. <laughs> okay, okay, I can live with that. You know, what is your kryptonite? Well, causing a bit of trouble in the social media world um, and trying to keep pharma companies, you know, into not rejecting the social channels because overwhelmingly patients prefer social channels. So um, I am a bit of a mischief maker on that one. So I do like to kind of make a bit of trouble for the greater good. So uh, that's kind of fun. But uh, we recently in our in our next-gen team meetings just yesterday, we all had to put our stripes on and we decorated uh, glasses for Focus on Rare, which is a campaign that we run because it's Rare Disease Day in a few in a few days' time. So it was pretty fun to, you know, be sat with, you know, 49 of my colleagues in the agency in ridiculously bright stripes with, um, you know, fancied-up glasses. So uh, that, that was quite good fun, so. That's awesome. Um, yeah. What is your kryptonite, by the way? So we got two more. Oh. Politics. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You know, I'm really, I'm really rubbish when there are kind of political points scoring, you know, pharma company versus pharma company. I, I, I won't entertain it. I literally will just, I'll, I'll physically leave a room if people are being competitive rather than collaborative. Um, I'm kind of no nonsense on that front. So that, that, that would be kryptonite for me, point scoring and politics in pharma. Don't do it. Fair, fair enough. Last question. Okay. Uh, what, television, what television show have you binged, binged on recently? Oh, I j literally just finished watching Behind Her Eyes, which um, 
is a psycho thriller kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm more of a binge reader. I know that sounds really pompous, but I'm more of a binge reader than I am a binge TV watcher, um, partly because we only have one TV in our house. And as I've mentioned, we've got a lot of adolescents. So the li- likelihood of me to get <laughs> close to a TV is, is remote. Um, but I did watch um, Behind Her Eyes. And then before that, Bridgerton, of course. <laughs> of course, Bridgerton. Okay. Fair enough. Okay, so again, thank you for being our guest. Based on our discussion, we talked about the differences between engagement, centricity, patient support, and advocacy. We talked about um, post-approval support. We talked about how to have a... uh, Sorry, that's my dog in the background. But... uh, (laughs) um, We we talked about how to actually have a good group and engage with, uh, with... patients in a transparent manner. We talked yeah. about the differences in the groups that may come together um, to advocate for the patients and to sort of um, reach out to patients, whether it's medical affairs, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, whether it's patient advocacy itself. Um, and we talked about some of the initiatives and, and the technology uh, that's pushing us forward. Yeah. Um, so if hopefully if I haven't missed anything, we do, I should clarify, Nothing in this podcast was legal advice. It's everything is no, for uh, no medical advice educational and entertainment purposes. <laughs> uh, for those of you who missed it, Emma, where can they find you? Where can they find me? Yes. You can find you can find me on Twitter, um, uh, Sutty Emma. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can email me uh, nextgen, Emma at nextgenhc.com. Um, I, I, you can probably find me a bit too easily actually <laughs> okay you have so, uh, reach out i'm always happy to have these kind of discussions it's you know like i say patient engagement is is my fifth child and i love it i pinch myself every day that this is the work that i do um you get to ask one question to the audience and hopefully they'll respond so what is one question you'd ask of the audience i would like them to tell me about the best patient engagement campaign they've ever seen. Oh, I like that. Okay, very cool. Um, For those of you who missed it, uh, please, if you like this podcast, please leave a like, a comment, subscribe. And you can find me on Darshan Talks on Twitter uh, or at my website, darshantalks.com. And Emma, thank you so much for coming on. This was amazing. Thank Um, you. Love to have you on again. I'd love to come back again. Please do invite me. This is the Darshan Talks podcast, regulatory guy, irregular podcast with host Darshan Kulkarni. You can find the show on Twitter at Darshan Talks or the show's website at darshantalks.com.